Okay, so our passage this morning is a little bit longer of a passage than we normally tackle. And so instead of reading it all ahead of time, like we often do, I'm going to read portions of it as we go throughout the sermon this morning. Um, But we are looking at the whole second half of Mark 14, uh, verses 43 to 72. And we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. We're taking this big chunk for a couple of reasons. The first one, less importantly, is that we're going to finish Mark before Advent. We're going to do a a new sermon before Advent. And so we kind of need to keep our foot on bit to make it through the end of Mark in the next three weeks. Um, But the more important reason, besides logistics, is that I think Mark actually strung these three stories together for a reason, for a purpose. The scenes we're going to look at this morning, um, they're true historical sequence of events in Jesus' life. Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He stood trial before the Sanhedrin, and then Peter denied him three times. But Mark's a really good author. Okay, this is, um, I don't know, as you read the, the gospel, if this is something that we appreciate so much about the, the art of crafting this book. But Mark's actually a really good author. And so instead of just handing over the bare minimum of facts, like a good author, he tells us the facts, and then he also tells us the story behind the facts, Right? So, in the same way that Cormac McCarthy, for example, in The Road, is telling us a story about a post-apocalyptic world and a father and a son who are trying to survive, he's actually telling us something much deeper about the human spirit and what it means to love and what it means to have purpose and hope. Or just like John Krakauer, uh, when he wrote Into Thin Air about that um, awful disaster in 96 when everybody died on Everest, Um, Yes, he's telling us the historical events as he goes in a compelling and a true way, but he's also telling us this deeper story or asking deeper questions about the spirit of adventure. I mean, what, what does it mean to be human? What's our relationship with God's creation and even more? So when Mark tells us these facts, these three scenes, they're all historically true. This is how Jesus' life happened the night before he died. Um, But he's also telling us something deeply true about our own lives, about all of human life. The real story about these three historical facts, these scenes, the reason they're linked together is because they're three trial scenes. All right, so in the first scene, the disciples are on trial as they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Will they follow their Lord and Savior or not? Will they have faith in his plan for them? And then we see Jesus literally on trial before the Sanhedrin, and then we see Peter on trial um, in the courtyard at the same time Jesus is on trial inside. And the deeper spiritual reality is this. All of us are on trial. Okay, there's a spiritual reality that all of us are on trial. We face trials, and how will we respond to them? And here's the truth. Here's the truth. I think the reason Mark strung these three stories together, before we jump into them, I just want to say it up front. There's only one person, just one person in the history of the world who has stood trial and been proved totally faithful, have been proved totally loving, totally generous, and totally merciful. When all others fail, this one man, one man among all of us, stands true. And as we put our faith in his faithfulness, he actually can give us hope to withstand the trials that we face in life as well. 
Okay, so let's jump into this. We're going to start with the, the trials of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, picking up in verse 43. Immediately while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Okay, scene one, trial number one. This betrayal scene is one of the most famous scenes in the Bible. Uh, It's a moment of tragedy. It's even a moment of, of horror. I mean, a dear, close follower and friend betrays his leader with a kiss and sends him to his death. The phrase, the kiss of death, comes from this moment in history. Um, A kiss is one of the most intimate human actions. It's a sign of love. It's a uh, a sign of life. It's turned into a self-serving act of betrayal by Judas. Judas twists a greeting of friendship into a sign of death. So this will not only end up killing Jesus. I mean, this sends him down the path to the cross, but it actually ends up killing Judas too. This moment destroys him. He can't get over what he's done, and eventually he'll end up taking his own life in just, um, I think, a few hours, maybe a few days. Um, but it is um, it's human nature at its worst. I mean, this is like the worst moment, right? The worst moment. But it's also human nature at its most common denominator, at its most basic shared experience. See, we might even call this trial in, in the Garden of Gethsemane that all the disciples are going through here, the trial of sin. Because sin, this, this is a picture of the root of all sin. This is a picture of the, the default mode of the human heart. I mean, not this particular act of betrayal, not necessarily something this extreme, but the twisting of God's good gifts and turning them into co-opting them for our own self-serving purposes. And whether we want it to or not, it ends up hurting others. It ends up hurting ourselves. See, Judas's kiss, the kiss, was supposed to communicate love and friendship and intimacy. But he twists it and it turns into something that communicates betrayal. Now, we haven't done that exactly, but... Consider our own words. I mean, consider the way that we even use our own language in everyday life. I'm talking just like the most common, normal, everyday kinds of stuff. The gift of speech that was given to us by our creator God was supposed to be used to encourage one another, instruct one another, bring life and joy and encouragement to one another. It was supposed to create laughter. It was supposed to create community. But instead, how often do we find ourselves twisting that good gift and turning it into something that serves our own ends? For, and, and, the, and the fallout 
is hurting others or hurting ourselves. I mean, we gossip, we lie, we bully, we belittle, we subtly suggest through our language that we are better than other people. This is a twisting of God's good gifts, and it's really at the heart of all sin. Judas's actions here are awful, of course, but I guess what I'm suggesting is they're not that different in kind than what we do almost every day. They might be different in degree, but I actually think they're just different in circumstance. Given so many resources from Jesus, such a close relationship with him, he twists them to his own ends, and it undoes him. And he's not alone. Mark introduces Judas as one of the 12 in verse 43. I think it's a subtle indication from Mark that, look, he's just one of the guys on this one. He's just like everybody else. Yes, he's the one who does this awful thing, but really, they're all doing this together, aren't they? As Jesus heads towards his death in just a few hours' time, uh, not just Judas, but all of his followers and close friends will abandon him for their own comfort, for their own safety, plan of salvation apart from following Jesus. They believe there's a different path than the Jesus path to comfort and hope and life and joy. So after a brief hubbub where the disciples try to stand up for Jesus in like a strange like clash of swords and someone loses an ear, we learn in another gospel that Jesus actually puts that ear right back on, so no harm, no foul. Um, After the brief hubbub, we read in verse 50 that all of them run away, every single one of them. In fact, we're even given this strange little side note in verse 51 and 52 that one of them was only wearing a linen cloth, okay, so he just made it out in his pajamas that night. He didn't get fully dressed. And when he was seized by one of the guards, he decided, I can either stay here and remain clothed, or I can run away totally naked. And what did he opt for? Running away totally naked through the garden, okay? So this is funny It's also strange. We don't know who exactly this is, but the vast majority of scholars that I read on this think that this was a young man named Mark who was a close friend of Peter's and who would eventually take down Peter's firsthand account of Jesus' life and write it down in the first biographical account and call it the gospel according to Mark. This is Mark's understated signature putting himself in his own gospel. He never names himself, but he puts himself here, running away naked in shame and embarrassment from Jesus, along with all of the other disciples, along with all of the other followers. They all failed their trial that night. At the the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the disciples left everything to follow him anywhere, and now they leave Jesus to find safety anywhere else. The church comes out of this whole passion, the whole last week of Jesus' life. The church, Jesus' followers, we come out looking pretty unattractive through Jesus' final week. I mean, we're pretty wishy-washy in our commitment to follow him. We're pretty on again, off again in our faith. We're pretty willing to jump to an alternate plan for salvation and comfort and hope as soon as we see the option to take it. That is, it's not really good or bad. I think it's just reality, okay? This is just the reality of what it's like for them and for us today. I've said this before, and and it's worth repeating, but the church, including Grace Church of the Roaring Fork Valley, this is not a museum for saints 
to come every Sunday morning and sort of take in the vast splendor of our virtue and stare at one another and consider how good we all are because we're here at church this morning. No, no, no. The church is much more like the triage center of a hospital, right? We're just all here looking for health and healing. It's more like like a homeless shelter where um, we all come hungry and one of us says, look, guys, I know where we can get some bread, okay? This is not a museum for the saints. This is a hospital for the sick, And we're here not because we're great, but because we're looking for health and greatness in God, something outside of ourselves. Jesus' followers' faith is proven to be quite shaky and weak. In contrast, as Jesus faces his trial, his commitment to his Father's plan is steady and true, and he steals his soul for what comes next with unwavering faithfulness to the mission that he was sent in the world to achieve. So trial scene number two, the trial of Jesus, picking up in Mark 14, verse 53. <clears throat> this, uh, this mob, this group, they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony didn't agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'm going to build another one not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is, this court, it's called the Sanhedrin. It was the top court um, of the Jewish religious life in its day. It was comprised of 71 members who would sit on it with an alternating high priest that oversaw the proceedings each year. Now, according to tradition, they needed 23 Uh, folks, they need a quorum of 23 to be present to try a capital case where where a death penalty was on the line. But whether or not that happened, we don't hear that um, from the Gospels. Whether that was true this night or not probably didn't matter because pretty much every single other thing they did was illegal according to their own rules. So, for example, after a guilty verdict, a death sentence verdict, the court was required to meet again the following day to confirm and review the decision that they had made. And they didn't do that with Jesus. All cases had to be tried in daytime. No nighttime shady dealings. And this, of course, is in the middle of the night. It couldn't be tried on the eve of a Sabbath or on the eve of um, a holiday. This was on the, the eve of Passover. So they're 0 for 3 on that one, according to their own rules. A charge of blasphemy, which is what they convict Jesus of, couldn't be sustained unless the accused cursed God's name itself 
which Jesus never does, of course. And the sentence for blasphemy was death, but it was by stoning, not by crucifixion. See, we even see in verse 59, they couldn't even get their own false witnesses to agree on a story to convict Jesus. I mean, that's a whole new level of incompetence in a kangaroo court, right? Like, you you prepped those witnesses to tell the story you gave them for the questions that you were going to ask them, and they still couldn't get them to agree enough to convict Jesus of anything. This is not going well for them. Nearly every single detail of his trial violates the Sanhedrin's own rules of practice. And yet, there stands Jesus before them on trial for his life. And you know how much he says about all this mispractice and about all this injustice and about all the rights that he's losing as he stands before this sham court? He says nothing. He stands in silence before them as they cheaply debate whether or not he should die. Verse 60, the high priest says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent and he made no answer. I mean, the irony here is thick. It's the Sanhedrin that stands on the law and accuses Jesus who sits in the dock. He sits as the one who they're going to decide his fate. But in reality, it's the religious establishment who breaks all of the laws all of their own laws, and Jesus who upholds the truth and remains faithful through his simple silence. All he has to do is be there, and he is judging the court that's judging him. He doesn't even have to say anything. And consider for a minute just how much grace and trust there is in that silence from Jesus. I mean, as he stands there in silence, his rights were being abused in every possible way, But he laid them aside and trusted the plan of his heavenly father through his silence. His life was on the line, but he didn't feel the need to defend it or fight for it. He just submitted his life to the mission that God had sent him into the world to achieve. And he did that through his silence. He didn't have to say a thing. And as he bore all of this injustice, this sham trial, this abuse of his rights, um, he endured all of it with silence. Why? Because of his great love for the people that he was about to save through his death. His silence did all of that. He loved us, he trusted his father, he laid down his life, and he just did it by standing silently. He probably did even more than we'll ever know in that silence. But finally, he does speak. And when he does, he reveals to everyone listening who he is and what he's all about. Verse 61, again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Okay, again, the ironies here are thick. That phrase right there, the Son, or the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, it's one of the most complete uh, statements about who Jesus is actually in the entire New Testament. And it's on the lips of the enemy trying to put him to death. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus names his true identity. He tells us who he really is, the king of creation, the son of God, the one who will come on the clouds of heaven and make all things right again. And they killed him for it. One one author I read this week put it like this, the real problem with Jesus is he does, in the end, make himself equal with God. I mean, they were right. They were right. He claimed to be God, and they killed him for it. The deliverer of the world found himself in chains, The judge of the world is...
by a human court. I mean, think of the humility and the love in all of this. The, the holy one is condemned for being the worst kind of sinner there is. The, the son of God is called a blasphemer. The resurrection and the life is sentenced to die. The eternal high priest is judged by the reigning, rotating high priest of the year. This is Jesus' great gift to us in his silence before his death, that, that he had the, the power of the angels of heaven at his disposal. He could have called them down to flip this whole sham court on its head in an instant, but he stood silent because if justice came then for a few, salvation wouldn't come for the many later. So Jesus lays down his life and is abandoned by his friends and those who, um, who have twisted the good gifts towards their selfish end put him to death. So here's the thing. From the second trial scene, the point that we need to see is that Jesus stood faithful in the midst of total unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness from followers, unfaithfulness from the religious establishment, unfaithfulness from the government who is about to abuse its power. The only one standing true at the end was Jesus. And as he endures his trial in the courtroom, Peter undergoes his own trial outside in the courtyard. And as Christ, the solid rock, which we're about to sing here in a few minutes, remains faithful and sure, Peter, whose name actually means rock, is outside crumbling like a pile of sand. Okay, that's why we're calling this the tale of two rocks. Let's pick up the trial of Peter. This is uh, Mark 14, picking up in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were there with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Now, this is, this is the trial of Peter, but I think we could fairly call it the, the trial of faith. Um, and here's why. Peter gets a lot of flack for his denial of Jesus here. Um, but before we go there, we got to give him credit where credit is due. I mean, Peter's the only one who even put himself in a position to be able to deny Jesus in the courtroom that night. Um, it took incredible bravery. He was the only one to follow Jesus into the courtyard and be near him during his trial. Now, granted, okay, Peter had just fallen asleep in the garden three times while Jesus was trying to get him to pray. Um, but, um, but then he had this great act of bravery, right? He, he stood up to the, the Roman guards that were coming to arrest Jesus, and tradition says that he's probably the one who lopped off that poor guy's ear before Jesus put it back on. So, yeah, okay, he had this moment of weakness, but then he had this, this great moment of bravery again, but, 
true, then after the bravery, he promptly ran away, you know, with his naked friend Mark. Um, that wasn't his highest moment, of course. But then he has this great moment of bravery again and trust and courage as he follows Jesus alone into the courtyard to witness his trial. And now, again, he crumbles as he's asked by this little servant girl, not even under the pressure that Jesus is under in the court, but just by a small little girl next to a fire, and he crumbles as he denies Jesus three times. I mean, do you see the pattern here? Do you see the nature of Peter's faith? Um, I sympathize with Peter. More than that, actually, I am Peter, right? I think anybody seriously trying to follow Jesus in the gets Peter here. We, we are Peter. I mean, it's, it's two steps forward, it's one step back in our faith. It's, it's a day of clear sight for that all Jesus has done for us, a deep love and a desire for his word and his church and his commands and his gospel promises. And then, man, the next day, it's like this foggy forgetfulness in our hearts, right? We're bouncing back and forth between faith and denial, between um, trust and doubt. We're believing those voices that say, you know what, maybe the comfort that the world offers really is better than the path Jesus has asked me to go on. Maybe more, maybe more things in life are going to make me happier. Maybe money is going to make me more secure. Maybe a successful career is going to give me more identity in this world. Maybe more obedient kids are going to make me more acceptable to people. It's belief and it's unbelief all mixed up in our hearts. At the very same time, we are Peter the crumbling rock, and yet it's Peter, the crumbling rock, that Christ, the solid rock, stood there for, and then died for, and then recalled back into a relationship with him, and then recommissioned out into the world to be his voice of joy and hope. John 21 tells us how this story ends with Peter and Jesus. After Jesus had raised from the dead, it said they were eating breakfast on the beach, which is just awesome that a resurrected Jesus eats a breakfast of grilled fish. There's a whole sermon in that, but we'll do that another And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon the Rock, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And right then, it says Peter was grieved because he said to it a third time. He knows what three statements mean, doesn't he? Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Three words of denial, followed by three gracious words of a restored and a renewed relationship from Jesus. You see, Judas's main problem was not that he betrayed Jesus to face his death. I mean, that's a crazy thing to say, but that wasn't his main problem. You know what Judas's main problem was? Because all the disciples ended up abandoning Jesus. Judas's problem was that his sin and his failure and this terrible act that he did, he didn't turn again trust in Jesus after he had done those things. Jesus has shown that he is willing to take anybody who is following him with half a heart, sinning, denying, not trusting, doubting. He's, ta- he's willing to take anyone back 
As often as they stumble, Peter is exhibit 1A for that stumbling, bumbling, doubtful disciple, and he became the rock on which Jesus built his entire church. Judas's failure was never his deepest problem. It was his lack of faith in a Savior who could forgive the very depths of his sin. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe Jesus could love him that much after what he'd done to him. But Peter, however often he failed, and however often he sinned, he looked again to Jesus, trusting in the infinite depths of his forgiveness. Peter didn't see weakness and um, and, and neediness and sin as a liability in following Jesus. He saw those things as an opportunity to receive again the grace and the love that's always available through Jesus. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China um, and named my first son after him. And he said, God chose me because I was weak enough and he trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then he uses them. There's an American pastor and evangelist named Vance Havner who said a little bit different way. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness. So we teamed up and it was an unbeatable combination. That is the very heart of the Christian gospel. The entire promise of the gospel of Christianity is that um, in our poverty, Jesus is rich for us. In our weakness, Jesus is strong for us. As we crumble as rocks, he is the solid rock in which we can stand and always look to to offer us hope as we endure the trials in our life. So as we... um, transition to the communion table this morning. Um, This is the family meal of the people of God. And um, as we do that, let's just remember that the very reason we're in God's family at all is not because we're virtuous, not because we got it all right, not because we are shining examples for others to come in view of what Christian moral life looks like. We're here and we come to this table because we know we need it. This is a table, this is a meal where we come empty-handed and we receive the good gifts of the gospel that Jesus has um, achieved on our behalf. This is where we come empty-handed to receive his gifts. So if you know that you're weak enough to be at this table this morning and that you need Christ, the solid rock, to be strong for you, come. This table has been set for you.